Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Stuart Candy. Originally from Australia, Stuart holds a double degree in arts and law from the University of Melbourne and an MA and a PhD from the University of Hawaii at Manoa Futures Program. As an experiential futurist, strategic facilitator and advisor, Stuart has worked with a range of organisations from UNESCO to Burning Man, to mention a couple. Stuart aims to amplify humanity's capacity for navigating alternative futures by any media necessary. Stuart is a pioneer of practices where design and foresight meet. Things like experiential futures, design fiction and speculative design. He is especially interested in amplifying the future shaping capabilities of underserved communities and organisations with his ethics-driven mission. Stuart's work has appeared in city streets and in festivals and in magazines like Wired and The Economist. He is also the co-creator with Jeff Watson of the acclaimed imagination game The Thing from the Future. Recently, Stuart, with Sher Potter, edited Design and Futures, which is an omnibus paperback and e-book about futures and design, of course. Currently, Stuart is an associate professor in the Carnegie Mellon School of Design, where he is responsible for integrating foresight and futures through the design curriculum. Welcome to FuturePod, Stuart. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Peter. Great to get you here. Yeah, well, it's um, this is our, I don't know if listeners will, will need to know this, but this is our second attempt <laughs> to have this conversation. <laughs> and you came all the way to Australia to do yeah, the second yeah, yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, a year ago, I, I, th I think we had a problem with Skype or something, yeah, but, um, it so, work well. but I've forgotten everything I said, so, <laughs> so it's uh, effectively a clean slate. Well, let's start with question one, Stuart, which is the one where I encourage the guests to tell their story of how they become a member of the Futures and Foresight community. So yeah. what's the Stuart Candy story? Um, well, I mean, I think I, I find it helpful to, to do the short version first. So the short version is that I kind of grew up interested in everything and couldn't decide what to do and came across Futures at a young age and, you know, tried doing other things, but they didn't stick <laughs> and then found my way back to, to Futures and because it is a container or a sort of nexus for doing just about for pursuing just about anything you're interested in that really fit well um and the sort of upshot of that you know kind of arriving in futures with all of these interests and a kind of restlessness about about futures as I, as I kind of found it I suppose a real excitement about what we were inheriting from decades of practice and scholarship mm. so far but also a sense that it could be something else and something more and something a bit more culturally attuned and effective. Yep. And that's sort of how I found my way to doing futures in a, in a cultural register with design, with theater, with film, with whatever we could get our hands yep. on basically. So that's the short version. I don't know. <laughs> Do you want to hear a longer well, one? Well, I mean, a... I think it's good to go back that, you know, for you, I remember you, I can remember in our first interview and where you talked about when you first went to a futures conference yeah. as, a, as a fairly young person. Yeah. So to go into it a little bit more, my, my parents were both educators. My dad uh, in, at universities here in Australia, my mum in high schools, and she usually taught geography and economics. But at a certain point uh, when I was in year 11, 
um, in, in uh, you know in high school in Brisbane at a different school from where she was teaching. She happened to be teaching portions of a pilot course that the Queensland School Board, Senior Board of Senior Secondary School Studies, I think it's called, um, was trying out. And uh, she was integrating modules of this pilot futures curriculum into a geography course. Right. And I came across the course reader at home one day, and that's how I learned that the field existed. And I, I realized, you know, years later that this uh, curriculum, I think, had been put together by Richard Slaughter yep. in the mid-1990s. And, uh, but, you know, that was sort of in retrospect. The funny thing is that the following year, there was obviously quite a bit of activity in Australia uh, in the, the late 90s. And the following year, 1997, I was in my last year of high school and it happened that the um, the World Future Studies Federation was having its biennial conference at the University of Queensland. Yes. Uh, and Tony Stevenson was the president, president of the federation at the time. And I uh, found out about this somehow and called up the number on the you know brochure that they'd sent around and said, can I come to your conference? And they were like, yeah, sure, why not? And so <laughs> and my sister was actually, my older sister was an undergrad at UQ. And so I... Uh, went to this conference and you know it was a bit of a revelation actually uh in a, in a funny way i think i realized more and more in the years after going to the conference how unusual it was because i think it was the might have been the first or second conference on anything that mm. i'd ever been to but what really struck me was how eclectic yeah. the participation was so you know you would have a tie-dye wearing hippie doing a presentation about experiments with hydroponics on the commune where they lived north of Brisbane, followed by a suit-wearing, tie-wearing corporate consultant talking about modelling, you know, futures in software. Yeah. And this kind of eclecticism, this, you know, this broad and generous container for sort of, it felt like anyone might be in attendance and 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 would be licensed to, to participate. That, that, sort of struck me, I think, uh, you know, even before I was able to articulate it. And I did a day-long Intro to Futures workshop as a participant that Wendy Schultz ran. And Wendy, of course, was, you know, one of uh, Jim Data's alumni. She'd just finished her PhD the year before, I later realized. But so she was at, at this conference, and so was Data, and so was Robert Theobald, and so were many, you know, kind of luminaries, then and now, although some of them are no longer with us. And that's kind of what that, I suppose, consolidated a nascent interest in the field. And when I w came down to Melbourne and studied as an undergrad here, as you said, about two blocks from where we're sitting, uh, I, there, there weren't any futures courses on offer. No. So I studied other things. I, you know, the arts degree ended up being in the history and philosophy of science, which was my way of doing law alongside science, alongside, you know, liberal arts because I couldn't sort of quite decide what, you know, which of the two to pick, which of the three, um, which two of the three to pick. But I had a, a, a professor in the history and philosophy of science major that I ended up doing who was interested enough in futures to supervise me in a directed reading yeah. course. And what I wanted to do with that was actually take Jim Dato's um, <laughs> long running online course, which I think would have been a fantastic, you know, um, way to to deepen my understanding of the field, but the university wasn't having it. They would no. not allow me to to do a, an online course. They they were firmly committed to campus based education, so I had to just do this you know self directed thing. Anyway, so yeah, I guess that was where it started, and then I, I attended the the WFSF and UNESCO sponsored um, Budapest Futures course a couple of times in two thousand and one and two thousand and three, and one of those I 
forget which maybe you'll remember, was followed immediately by the Bucharest Futures Conference yep. in Romania. So having gone to both of those things, sort of just as I was finishing up my undergrad, that helped to, in 2001, that kind of helped to, I suppose, consolidate a sense that, yes, this is something I was interested in. Yes, it was something I wanted to pursue, but it was still a bit you know, extracurricular or off the side of my desk. No one was paying me to do it. It was mm. sort of a, you know, it was a, a curiosity that wouldn't go away. So I, I spent a year after I finished my, after I finished my, my undergrad studies living in the former Yugoslavia and trying to make a documentary, uh, which is a whole other story. But the short of it is that I realized later that the documentary I, I'd been trying to make for a year was actually a futures project just sort of staring me in the face. It was about uh, Montenegro's plans to become the world's first ecological state. Yep. Um, Ill-fated kind of plans because they got started to get them off the ground just as the civil war in that tore Yugoslavia apart got underway. In the History early caught up with their future. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But then, so in 2003, the year that I spent there, there was a guy trying to get that back off the ground again and I met him he was running for the presidency as an independent anyway we, we really don't need to go down that rabbit hole but but I, I was I was doing this you know on my own dime spending my um, you know hard-earned money from my first post uni job uh, to try to in a way you know sponsor myself to see if I could make a film um, because I had always been probably as interested in filmmaking as anything else, you know, despite mm. all of the reading, all of the sort of very heady bookish work that, that one does in a law degree and in a, in a history and philosophy of science degree, I think I was sort of reaching towards some kind of integration of these interests of mine that I wasn't finding in what was being formally put in front of me. Um, and so, you know, that film, although I didn't finish it, I think in a way was a, a sort of a funny foretaste of what I ended up being, have continued to be interested in through all of these years of kind of using storytelling and media to enliven and enable uh, deeper engagement with, with possibilities worth talking about. Okay. Yeah. After, after that tried to start a company with a friend in Canada that didn't work out particularly well <laughs> while I was there, I, I learned that I'd got a, a scholarship to go to Hawaii and study with Jim data. It was the only place in the world that I applied. It was the only thing I was interested in doing at that moment you know, being in a community of people who understood what the hell I was talking about, so I wouldn't have to explain Futures 101 to every person I met, which was sort of starting to become a little bit wearing. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that was the year that when I moved there in 2005, I think that was the year we met. In Chicago. Um, yeah, in Chicago, which was yeah. about a uh, about a month before I arrived in Honolulu to, yeah. to do my postgrad work. And so I was there in... Um, yeah, the World Futures Society meeting, wasn't it, in, in Chicago. And so I was in Honolulu for uh, four years, did a, an East-West Center fellowship, which was actually Wendy Schultz's suggestion. This is, we're, we're doing this sort of Tarantino, Christopher Nolan jumping back and forward thing now. But um, after spending time in, um, in the former Yugoslavia, I, I uh, worked in London for a while. And doing futures projects, worked with Wendy Schultz, uh, among others, and she suggested considering the possibility of because i think you know we talked about the fact that that i kind of wanted to go deeper with the future's work even than deeper even than you know sort of doing the job on a paid consulting or research basis mm. allowed because the pace of these projects is often you're sort of driving by this stuff that you really would like to get out of the car and look at yeah. and so that that i think sort of prompted 
the line of thought that it might be worth doing this in a community, in a, in a, in a community of scholars and practitioners, and, and Hawaii was really sort of the, That's where you really the place started. that seemed to resonate. That's where you really started, yeah. Yeah, so moving to Hawaii in 2005 to start a master's degree in the you know, Manoa School program that Jim Data ran also coincided completely you know, in completely unforeseen and serendipitous fashion with the beginning of an initiative by the state legislature to try to engage the public in thinking about Hawaii's longer term futures out to, to 2050. And that was where the kind of current, that was where what we came to sort of think of as experiential futures really got its start. They came because they've been trying to engage the community in futures work, and it was really that you had an idea rather than just writing a report. Yeah, so when the state approached Jim Data, who was very well known to them because he'd been in Hawaii working as, a, as an advisor and a sort of sage on demand for several decades already, they had in mind, I think, that already the sort of broad outline of a of an initiative that would engage the public in co-creating a sustainability plan for the islands. And this was a, this was a good idea. I mean, a good idea in the sense that not doing it was a really bad idea (laughs) and not doing it is what they'd been doing, you know, for a really long time. So when I arrived there, for example, in 2005, 90% of the food that was consumed in Hawaii was brought in, was imported. Mm. And 95% of the electricity that was used in the islands was generated by burning oil. And Hawaii doesn't have any oil. (laughs) It brings it in on oil-burning tankers. The statistics that we were able to find at that time about about these supply chains that enabled this most remote archipelago to carry on like this uh, day in, day out, year in, year out, the, the best statistics we could find said that if, the, if that supply chain, if those tankers were to stop arriving, for whatever reason, that there would be between 6 and 11 days worth of vital goods, you know, in the warehouses uh, around the islands. And it seemed like no one, amazingly, kind of shockingly, really, <laughs> scandalously, it seemed like no one had ever asked the question publicly, what happens on the 12th day? Yeah. And so that penny was beginning to drop better late than never. And because of this presence of a futures program and a, not just the program, but the the Hawaii Research Center for Future Studies, which was an umbrella under or a shingle kind of that had been hung out in 1971, put in the budget, by the way, in the state budget as a line item. But they never appropriated any funds to actually put next to that line item. It had served as a sort of self-facilitated training ground for several generations of futurists, yeah. including Sohail and Ayatollah yeah. and Wendy Schultz and others. So that was kind of our our iteration of that, you know, self-organized education in consulting foresight. Yeah. And that really that and that's really where you got your start. And that's really the yeah. point at which you became a, you know. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, right. I think that's probably true. I mean, I had been doing stuff. You know, I, I in the UK, I worked for the National Health Service. Um, was responsible for a project about the futures of healthy communities. There was a uh, there was this project that we did, as I said, with Fast Future and Wendy and Rohit Talwa, in London. You know, with a a, a number of UK government 
agencies and ministries that were sort of a collection of clients for a scan for a pilot to a pair of pilot uh, horizon scanning projects but i think it was hawaii 2050 where you know not just i but several others including notably jake dunnigan mm-hmm. where we sort of cut our teeth there were other there were other projects before that yeah. and after that but that was the one that i think um was a turning point in terms of enabling the form of experimentation that we had intuited needed to be tried out that's good thanks Joe. Stuart, question two, I encourage the guest to talk to the listeners about a favoured method or tool or framework that's central to their practice Mm -hmm. and both explain the use of it and how as practitioners they might actually use it in what they do. So what do you want to talk about? Yeah, well, so I think maybe a kind of representative tool of um, where our practice has come to is the card game, the thing from the future. And this being a podcast, it's not particularly visual, but I can try to sort of describe how the framework operates because you don't actually need cards. This is the dirty little secret of, our, <laughs> of, the, of the method is you don't need cards. It's, it's about how you use your mind as, a, you know, as is most of the stuff that I find interesting in the, in, in the field. So the thing from the future, as you mentioned in your intro, is a collaboration with Jeff Watson. He's a professor of interactive media at the School of Cinematic Arts at uh, the University of Southern California. So that's really a a Hollywood engine. (laughs) But we met in OCAD University, Ontario College of Art and Design, where we were both hired at the same time into adjacent programs. Me in the Strategic Foresight and Innovation Program, him in the Digital Futures Program. We worked together for a year and started a a lab together. And then he was headhunted away to USC, where he'd been a a doctoral student and then a postdoc and they knew they wanted him so they snatched him away and we were really sad about that initially because you know we were just getting our legs under us with the lab's work at that time and we'd done a couple of events you know using the sort of prototype version of the thing from the future and some other stuff a listening part 70 75th anniversary listening party for the war of the worlds um radio broadcast was one of our <laughs> i think that was our first event in 2013 but so jeff went back to went uh, back to la he's from canada but he went back to la for that role and we were both sort of briefly quite sad about that and then realized that actually we could continue mm. the collaboration and the, uh, the activities of the lab at a distance and that would there would probably be some real benefits in doing that we didn't have to be co-located to get stuff done so this project has continued over those last five years and what it is is a kind of framework it's scaffolding for the imagination that is intended to help you get from vague and abstract ideas about possible futures to really specific concrete imaginable propositions for things that could exist in countless possible futures and that move from the kind of abstract to the concrete i think is basically built into a large amount of what we do as futurists i mean that that's the premise certainly a large part of what you do yeah 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 okay fair enough Uh, people people do things in different ways but i but i but i do think that basically any scenario process and as you know there are dozens of them entails creating stories or accounts of hypothetical trajectories that are sufficiently specific to be able to think 
with them about what one ought to have done if yep. those things happened as described. And that is a, I mean, I don't, I'm not claiming that everybody does or should think about this the way that I do, but I am claiming that a movement from the abstract to the particular is a built-in requirement for thinking well about futures. Yeah. And you you can, you know, dispute that, that account of it, but I think it's true and I can explain why. <laughs> I'd say one of the main inputs into the into that line of thought was the the idea of generic images of the future, which is one of Jim Data's central insights. You know, after working with all sorts of communities and organisations and and people trying to think about futures in the late 60s and early 70s, before there was much in the way of methodological sort of formality or anything you could call a toolkit, he noticed that there were countless particular futures that people would talk about, tell themselves, you know, for, for entertainment or for strategic purposes or for a political campaign or whatever, regardless of the context, there are countless particular stories that people tell each other, but there are only so many plot lines yeah. when you zoom out. And so, that and those are, you know, grow, collapse, discipline, transform. And every, the idea is that, you know, every future that we might come up with is one or several of those. And I think that way of thinking, I mean, he doesn't talk about abstract in particular necessarily. No. I, I think that probably comes for me from from the legal training. This sort of idea of moving back and forth between the uh, the the abs abstract principles and particular instantiations and and language that one uses uh, to try to capture, let's say, you know, when you're drafting a uh, a criminal law statute, what you're going to try to prohibit something, you have to pick words that are going to apply to countless millions of unforeseeable in their details situations out in the world later on after that bill becomes a law yeah. and so that uh, and and in interpreting and so I, I think sort of attending to that probably tuned me into the presence of some of those same intellectual habits in futures that is you know not necessarily how everybody would look at it but but what I found generative about that and what I think is generative about about data's uh, insight re in relation to the generic images of the future or the archetypes, um, those four archetypes, is that once you have those uh, handrails to rely on, you can use them in all kinds of situations. Yep. And so what we were aiming to do with the thing from the future, the game, was to provide a structure whereby anyone who wanted to could come up with particular ideas for things that could exist in possible futures and in a sense be able to orient themselves in a vast possibility space what i mean by a vast possibility space is that if we're if we're willing to kind of suppose that all possible things that exist in all possible futures if that's the space we're talking about that's a hell of a lot of stuff mm. it's a lot more than all the stuff that's ever existed, sort of by definition, really, because if there are, if we can agree, yeah, if we can agree that there are, <laughs> that there are countless possible futures, um, but the past is whatever it is, then, you know, you're talking about, about a really sort of intimidatingly large kind of conceptual space. How do you orient yourself within that space? Well, what the card game sort of supposes, and I'll describe the current version and we can talk about kind of the the original one and how and why that changed, if that's interesting to you. What it supposes is that uh, that you can characterize possible futures in terms of just the kinds of world that they are. So the first card, there are three in the second edition, the first card is 
just uh, is the future card, and it's what kind of future are you talking yeah. about? It's a thrilling future, or a scary one, or a decolonized one, or a queer one, or a feminist one, or a regimented one. You name it. It really any adjective, and actually. It doesn't have to be a single adjective. You could put in a description or you could put it in an entire book and mm. say, this is the future that yep. we're talking about. But the minimum sort of viable descriptor is an adjective yep. in this framework. And so in a thrilling future, that's a context. A, ne a, a step down the ladder from that is or actually, let's take two steps down to the thing, the thing from the future. If we're trying to get concrete, then then a second card can provide can provide the scaffolding to help you get concrete in the thinking by providing a a category of thing and that you know in the first version of the game that was quite literally different types of thing yeah. you know a tube or a product or a a wallet or a a sachet of something <laughs> consumable um, those were the words that we were using but in this framework that i'm describing the thing could be any fragment of culture it could be a headline it mm. could be a building it could be a law it could be a, uh, a festival or a ritual. That's one of my favorite ones. The third card is the theme. So if the first card is telling you what the big picture context is, and you pick that, and the thing card, the second one, is telling you what kind of a, what kind of a thing, what, how you're going to sort of try to instantiate the big picture idea in a more graspable concept, the theme card sort of mediates between the macro and the micro by providing a bit of meso-level information or a constraint that supposes what aspect of life or human endeavor or society you're looking at in between the, you know, in between the macro and the micro. So if it's, uh, and the, the theme might be the economy, it might be climate change, it might be robotics, it might be the workplace, it might be the brain, you name it. And literally for all of the, all three of these. So in a, in a thrilling future, there is a ritual related to the brain. Mm. What is it? And just that sentence right there and the prompt at the end, you can sort of start to see your imagination kicking into gear. You can add, if you like, a time horizon. And we often do, but they don't, they don't come in the card deck because often if you're doing a, a workshop or for a particular purpose, the time horizon will be set at the outset. You know, we're here to discuss 2050 or 2030 or whatever it is. And so, you know, then you'd be wasting a quarter of the deck with a bunch of cards that don't come in for use. But the, but the time horizon is an important variable and then the notion then is to sort of if you like see these as intellectually the notion is to see these as qualitative parameters that you can tune however you need to in order to guide your imaginative effort in whatever direction is most important and valuable so you know if you work for an autom automotive uh, company or you're, you're consulting to one then maybe the theme of mobility might be fixed for a while, but you'd rotate or pivot around that a variety of future contexts that challenge them to think about, you know, how a feminist future would change the car, would change uh, what what they should be producing as uh, a car industry, or how a, de a, a decolonization process might affect their business, or or what a thrilling future would look like. You know, it can be used not just to challenge business models, but to uh, to kind of explore the future, however it is that you, it needs to be explored. So that, as a framework, it was prompted by a collaboration that we, Jeff and I, undertook with some friends of ours, uh, Elliot Montgomery and Chris Wobkin from New York, that they have a, a practice, they're designers, with a practice called the Extrapolation Factory. And back in 2014, we 
cooked up this idea of doing a design jam together one Saturday at OCAD in Toronto. And they came up from, from New York and we had, I think, 35 or 40 people, some of them designers, some of them randoms <laughs> who just had heard about the event and registered. But they were, we gave them these cards, the first edition of the thing from the future, to play for the first hour and a half or so of a day-long event. And people collectively came up with about 200 ideas for things from the future. As I said, they were kind of literally things because what we were aiming to do was to fill up a vending machine with physical future mm. artifacts by the end of that day. Having come up with those 200-odd ideas, we, we had people put them into the middle of a table in a pool and they were instructed to find one that they were excited about that was not one that they had come up with. So this idea of cultivating a kind of abundance mentality vis-a-vis -vis interesting ideas about the future instead of falling in love with the first thing that you come up with that uh, that really tickles you which happens a lot it happens a lot in all fields but it really you see it very clearly in design that uh, design students um, you know will come up with something that they like and be unable to be sort of pried away from that from that idea but there's plenty more ideas where that came from is one of the sort of underlying concepts behind okay, this so as a generative framework. I'm going, to, I'm going to stop you here because this is actually the point where I think you've explained how the cards work generally yeah. in terms of But now I'm going to go to the why you use it and what the point of it is. So one of the things I've been hearing is you, you use a prop like the cards to prevent some things happening. And you've actually just described the first thing you want to prevent, which is a person getting too attached to their first idea. So that's that's a reason mm. to do it. Yeah, what are yeah. some other what are some other reasons why bringing this into a process is such a useful thing? Can yeah, be a that's useful a, thing? yeah, it's a good question. I, I mean, I don't want to frame this all in terms of prevention and you know the what we're trying to avoid. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a so sort what of you're flip trying side. To, what you're trying yeah, to innate. Yeah, well so okay. So at the highest level I think what we're or the sort of the broadest level I think what we're trying to do is to recalibrate people's relationship to the future as a space. Right. So that it is made less scary and intimidating and uh, made more accessible and social. But you're so, also making it stranger. Go on. Well, because people people will be forced to put things together yeah. in a way that they haven't imagined the future. Yeah, well, right. right. So the next level, you know, sort of the, the next thing we're trying to do, I suppose, is provide a framework that that is, I'll use the word tunable, so that it's capable of being used in a kind of randomized fashion that is funny and eccentric and gets you thinking thoughts you never thought before because you're, you know, because you're thinking about a an absurd future in um, in which there is a device related to parenting, you know, and having be, being invited and and licensed to have a thought process and get specific with it, and then amuse and and uh, entertain and enlighten your fellow players with what you've come up with. That is the 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 tunability is important because it it allows us to move along a spectrum between randomized play that's that's fun and absurd and exploratory and just sort of mind expanding and socially lubricating um and then when you start to tune those same parameters into the conversations you really need to be having it doesn't it it, it remains a game and it can remain fun but it doesn't have to stay silly um and uh, comical it you can you can have ideas that are 
So talk about this tuning. So how do you then tune people? If you've used this as a kind of opening process to get the juices going, how do you then start to tune the thinking? So, well, so you choose contents for each of those parameters that are closer to what, to the conversation that the people need to be having in whatever, whatever context they are operating. So, you know, in the past year we've done, stuff with the Obama Foundation, with emerging leaders from across Asia and the Pacific. We've done stuff with the uh, NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory in uh, in Pasadena, stuff with uh, Skoll World Forum in Oxford, uh, World, World Forum on Social Entrepreneurship. And in each of those cases, you know, emerging leaders from across Asia and the Pacific, literally rocket scientists who formulate um, mission ideas for JPL and social entrepreneurs from around the world operating in, in various contexts, the conversation they need to be having or the futures that are that are germane to their day in day out are different and so the the process of working with them may start with absurd ice breaking uses of the of the cards and then be tuned towards social entrepreneur to, towards the, the particular themes like you know in the case of the JPL guys that and girls they were coming up with ideas for for things that could exist in their domain and that's the pattern we help people, you, you know, kind of wrap their heads around the layeredness of the layeredness of the constraints that are always operative on their imaginations, but they're usually not aware of. And then by making people aware of them and literally sort of drawing attention to them with the cards, you can then make them changeable. And that too, I think, has uh, a kind of structural uh, resemblance to something that we very frequently do as futurists: is draw people's attention to the tacit assumption set that they are walking around with and operating out of so that those assumptions can then be explicitly challenged and they can see what things look like when they change them to something else. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the another way of saying what the purpose of the game is is to improve futures literacy. And one of the, the resources I can share is a is an article that we did for um, Riel Miller's collection, Transforming the Future, a couple of years ago. You know, Riel being based at UNESCO and having this wide-ranging and far-reaching effort to uh, enable futures literacy in the many countries around the world where UNESCO operates. What we were trying to contribute was a playful process that anyone interested can use to get better at those things. I mean, I'd call it a playful and purposeful process. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I I think exactly, yeah. And and you sort of... The significance is in the juxtaposition or the co-presence of those two things. If it were just purposeful, well, we, you know, we've had that. We know what that looks like <laughs> when the playfulness is sort of sucked out of the yeah. room. Uh, it's hard because there are lots of, there's a lot of risk riding on the future and on conversations about it, and that can make it really dire and even impossible to have the conversations that ought to be had in one context or another. Um, and playfulness by itself, yeah, I mean, that's great, but it's the bridging of the playful and the purposeful that I think is significant. Thanks, Joe. Stuart, question three is the one that often the guests find difficult because I ask <laughs> them to put down their expertise as a academic futurist consultant, you know, in your case, professor of futures, and ask you how you see the future emerging, the futures emerging, and what's energising you? What's, 
what are the ideas about the future that excite, mm. scare, um, thrill, uh, Stuart Candy? Hmm. Yeah, it, it is the hardest question, <laughs> I think. I was, I'm visiting Melbourne at the moment to see my family with my wife, who's also, whose family is also based here in Melbourne. And we were visiting the, um, we were having lunch in uh, Williamstown the other day uh, on the bay here in Melbourne. And the, and we, after lunch, we went on to the, uh, Cedar's father is a, used to be a ship's captain for 30 years. And so we thought he might enjoy um, going on to the HMAS Castlemaine, which is a World War II minesweeper that's now a sort of maritime museum permanently resident there in, in Hobson's Bay. And usually there's a beautiful, spectacular, really, view of the Melbourne skyline from the deck of the Castlemaine. But uh, a few days ago when we were there, all we could see was a curtain of opaque grey that looked like fog. And, you know, it's Melbourne, so anything can happen weather-wise, but it wasn't fog. No. You could smell the smoke, and it was deeply disturbing to realise that, you know, we're having this lovely lunch, and then 300-odd k's sort of to the east, um, the world is on fire. And I, I think that that, you know, we were speaking about the juxtaposition of playful and purposeful before. This, this juxtaposition of, the, of kind of mundane and pleasant and, and utterly dystopian is, feels characteristic to me of the of the future that that is emerging and that we have uh, kind of that we're manifesting for ourselves in the present and i feel like i've been in training for this Mm. not just through uh you know the years of being around futures but through the last few years of living in the u.s this really weird kind of tension between the craziness of what's going on in federal politics and uh who's in charge and how that came to be and the, and sort of day-to-day life where, you know, most of that stuff is not in view most of the time. And I think I, I have a, an increasing appreciation for the, for the post-normal framing that some of our colleagues, mm. um, like Zia Sardar, Sardar yeah. Yeah, and, and Maya Van Leemput and John Sweeney and, and Geordie Serra and others have been developing because it's very difficult to express how odd the simultaneity of those things is and and i was all i was put in mind the other day of of a a great insight by uh tom atley who's a a democracy activist and facilitator in the pacific northwest who who said years ago that things are are getting better and better and worse and worse faster and faster and that that's how it feels to me you know this is a this is kind of what we've been training for Mm. in a in an odd way but and, but it's cold comfort to be vindicated mm. in this way mm. by, you know, by a reality that, uh, like, you know, the fact that the the Gano report, the famous... Um, Ross Gano's saying, we, we, you know, this... In 2008, this, this, this national, national news, you know, a really yeah. significant sort of policy statement and forecast by a preeminent economist in Australia... Uh, in 2008, it said um, by 2020, uh, we should be seeing the um, impact of of climate change yeah. uh, in in bushfires. And right on cue, this is what's so. You know, there's a. I gave a talk at the um, at the World Future Studies Federation conference in Mexico City in September, 
and called Cassandra's Children. That was what I named the talk, sort of in reference to Cassandra from Greek myth. Uh, and uh, see the future, and nobody would believe it. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think most of the time we have. It, it's not we're not cursed with perfect foresight and knowing exactly what's going to happen, but we are cursed with having something of value that it, that doesn't get listened to. And the reason I wanted to highlight that in this in this keynote to that to, to my community is that I think we have tremendous amount of emotional labor that we do and don't do that we engage in and have to engage in in order to do the work we do but that we don't acknowledge even sometimes to ourselves <laughs> and I've seen really you know great people who I, I love and respect go through hell because the the rigors of being a futurist mm. in in these times are really tough so I don't know if that's if that answers your I mean, question what, adequately. I mean, but I mean, I'm I'm going to ask, how does Stuart Candy manage the emotional labour? Well, I mean, I'm blessed to have a partner who will <laughs> who listens to me and is a, a you know sort of a sounding board for a lot of what I experience. I think a large part of it is actually through the solidarity among colleagues, and that's that's sort of why I raised it in in a conference context, because I wanted to name and point out something that I think we all know, but that I hadn't sort of heard expressed uh, sort of officially or acknowledged in that, in that kind of way. Because I think we can do better if we're there for each other more. And I think that that being there for each other is, I mean, I, I have a number of, you know, ongoing collaborations with people in different time zones. And frequently, you know, the first significant chunk of our catch-ups has to do with processing the world <laughs> that yeah. we're living in and then you know we we're, uh, hopefully we get to the actual project at some point but but that there's value to being able to talk about it with each other too and i mean in terms of as an experiential futurist the world is going through an experience of the future mm -hmm. i mean what do you say to people who could who, who might want to work with this, with groups of people. Because you haven't had to set this up. This has happened. All the world has watched this. Right. Oh, you mean this sort of teachable moment yeah. of, of, I mean, uh, of a foreseen future coming yeah. to pass without being acted I mean, on? How could people who are trying to have conversations use this as an experience with people? Well, you, you mentioned a moment ago the importance of people seeing what they're doing. Um, in a kind of pedagogical setting um, for them to, you know, be, don't look now, but you've just had some novel thoughts <laughs> or you've, um, you know, you've just had a, a, a deeper or, or bolder or more far reaching conversation about the future than maybe you've ever had before anywhere uh, or at work or, you know, depends on the context. I think the noticing what we're doing and not doing in a broader sense is, is, that's the move that that I mm. think you're gesturing to here is like noticing the fact and and being prepared to articulate the fact that this that what we're living through is not the kind of it might be shocking to experience but it's not surprising because it's been talked about for uh for decades and we need to be prepared to say that yeah thanks for that Stuart that's good
Question four, Stuart, is the one I... How do you explain what you do to someone who doesn't necessarily know or understand <laughs> what it is you do? Yeah. Well, it depends where they're coming from, honestly. So, uh, you know, if they're an economist or if they're a, a lawyer or if they're a barber uh, or a taxi driver, I'll have a different answer. Uh, or I hope it's a different answer <laughs> because I'm interested in meeting them where they are. Mm. So the sort of one sentence version, uh, you know, if they kind of happen to catch that I've described what I, myself as a futurist, what's a futurist? A futurist is someone who helps people think about things that haven't happened yet. And, and that inevitably leads to other questions. Mm. But the next question will sort of, you know, tell me more about what they might find most useful to hear. So you call yourself a futurist? Yeah, I do, to, at my hazard, uh, because often that puts me in a kind of associate, a cloud of associations that uh, that I may not want to be part of. Mm. But uh, but I think it's important for for us to take the word back and populate it and uh, flesh it out with with worthwhile practice um, rather than ceding it to you know avant-garde uh, artists from the early 20th century in Italy or um, charlatans or, you know, technocrats who um, want to tell you what the future is mm. going to be and don't even distinguish between what they want and what they expect. Before we leave this question, I just, <laughs> I just want you to just kind of, exp the unpacking of for you what futures is yeah. and, or what futures should be. So what is it that you wish your discipline and space to be? Well, I don't really have a wish for it to be a discipline. Uh, and I think perhaps this is where I'm a little bit torn because it would be nice to have the kind of stable and respectable professional identity that one might have as a psychologist or an architect, let's say. But that's not our lot. <laughs> you know, what the work that we're doing has to do with going to the edge of what people are able to think about and articulate and help them take the next steps. And that is true of particular conversations or particular explorations in certain domains, but it's also kind of true at a meta level of the whole activity, the whole idea of being someone who helps to facilitate thoughtful and felt engagement with possibilities that result in wiser choices. That is not yet a thing that everybody has heard of. And so it's part of our lot or our gift is to make it a thing that people have heard of and that they can use whatever parts of it are helpful to them to move through uncertainty. Hmm. But there are people who study, do qualifications, spend serious amounts of money and time in getting a qualification in order to practice and trade. And they, to some extent, would like it if it was better understood what it was yeah. that we did. Yeah, that's true. I mean, but I, I think we're, again sort of borrowing some of the idioms and the practices and the uh, accoutrements of disciplinarity at a moment that disciplinarity is sort of imploding and, <laughs> and, you know, and being sort of revealed in many ways as a kind of political process yeah. that, uh, that knowledge structures sort of get generated by groups of people and then defended for all their worth. <laughs> And, you know, it would be nice to be inside such a castle, you know, <laughs> such a well-defended <laughs> fortress. 
but that isn't really the our job. And I and actually, the closer we get to that, the more I worry that it you know sort of risks ossifying into yeah. into not being able to do that edge work that I was talking about. So you place yourself, you explain yourself on the edge. Well, I, I, what I the the solution is of such a hazardous word here, but the the approach that I've found myself engaging in is infiltrating other disciplines with futures um, so that it comes to be used and practiced and picked up as a kind of a more of a cross-cutting set of capabilities than as a than primarily as a sort of vertical all of its own being a design professor is if you like a it's sort of a business model for doing the for doing the kind of artist slash activist work as well as the you know applied scholarly work because fortunately we're endowed with the responsibility to sort of pursue both kinds of things in in a design school but it's also a a workaround a workaround the fact that there aren't sort of futures departments everywhere you look but there are people who think about the future and can use what we've been doing for the last half century thanks you Uh, Stuart, for the last question, and I'm going to ask this one just because I can, um, <laughs> you said that, you know, futures, when you look back at, um, you know, the Roscano report, which is, you know, over 20 years ago now, almost 20 years ago in Australia, but as you look around the world, futures has failed to really get the attention, the thinking, the language of decision makers in a whole range of places. You said that. So what is it the futures needs to start doing in order to be more effective in playing this role of being, you know, we're on the edge of what's emerging? Well, I don't remember word for word what I said earlier, but uh, I will say I don't think it's failed in toto as an abs- as a matter of, you know, absolutes, like the whole thing has been a waste of time and let's forget about it. I think it's... I think what I said is that it's failed to live up to its potential. Thank you. And what what I think is entailed in living up to its potential, or what I've been sort of feeling my way towards with my uh, students and collaborators and colleagues, other fellow travellers, is is exactly what we have started to do. So I don't think we're starting from square one, which is that's the good news. Mm. <laughs> the the sense that I guess. I've had for a long time, and I'm not the only person who, you know, came to this insight, but in the mid-2000s, sort of, I guess, on the way to becoming a student under Jim Data in Hawaii, there were conversations with people like Jose Ramos and Wendy Schultz in particular, both of them, and and then my longtime friend and collaborator, Jake Dunnigan, who I met in Hawaii the week I arrived there. We, and I'm sure others, but we had the feeling that the field could and should be doing much more to try to enliven and perform its theories. And that includes, I mean, we've touched on some of these points in this conversation so far, it includes the idea of integral uh, futures not just being a gesture or a sort of a good idea, but that there's there's something that we need to to do there are things that we need to do differently in order to be integrated like being able to uh to 
to speak about and to our emotions and our bodies as well as from the neck up. And Futures traditionally has been fantastic at sort of (laughs) operating from the neck up and kind of forgets about the rest of the body. So that, I think, is one of the most important trajectories of experimentation, exploration, practice, and it's usually it's practice, then theory, sort of figuring out what we did, which is, by my lights, how the field has always proceeded. It's always kind of been extruded by the exigencies of circumstance, you know, the need to figure out how to think about, think about life in the world in the uh, post-war wasteland, how, you know, if, if these kinds of cataclysms can happen not just once, but twice in half a century, then we need to be able to think about those things ahead of time and take action accordingly. So Futures, I think, has sort of been well ahead of the curve, happily and unsurprisingly, on the intellectual insight about the need for forethought. But it has been chasing the wrong, in my my view, chasing sort of too narrow a self-definition to really be effective. And in that way, feeding the field the contest of stories to to better storytellers than we have trained ourselves to become Hmm. so i think we basically need to become much better storytellers so how do we become better storytellers well i mean practice (laughs) is is, uh, one of the answers when i moved back to melbourne after six years in the u.s I'd been in Hawaii four years and then moved to San Francisco to work at Arup, uh, an engineering and design firm, as an in-house futurist for a couple of years. And and the group of people who I hung out with in San Francisco, include sort of this extended community, was really creative. And one of the one of the regular events that was run there was called Fireside Storytelling, and it was a monthly event that took place at a a kind of community-run art gallery in the Soma district. And the format was that there would be six storytellers and there was a theme. And the theme might be horror stories from work or one time at Burning Man or whatever. I mean, you know, the theme could be anything. It had a sort of thematic through line and the six storytellers were curated in advance. So they weren't necessarily professionals, but they knew that they were going to be telling a story that night. And it was in two halves and you'd sort of hear these three stories and, you know, sitting in rows watching these stories unfold, and they were true stories from people's lives. And it was great. You know, it was really, it was really enjoyable. So when I moved back in 2011, I thought, you know, if that doesn't exist in Melbourne or something like that, if I can't find something like that, then maybe I have to start it. Because I I knew I was going to miss a lot of things coming back after years away. And that was something I sort of identified that would be worth worth the effort. So I got back and uh, and asked around, and you know there were a couple of friendships that I was able to to pick up again. But for the most part, it was sort of starting starting again in terms of a community. So I didn't have people around me who uh, I'd known for a long time. But I asked around and sort of heard about a couple of things, but nothing quite like what I had in mind. And so I. I realized, well, then I need to do this thing. But I also didn't have a venue. <laughs> and I, you know, I didn't have a sort of handy community-run art gallery to, to work with. So I thought, well, you know, I'm going to have to do it at my place. I was working full-time, so I thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to try and do it on the weekend and compete with, you know, the Friday, Saturday axis of entertainment, <laughs> stuff that's already going on. I'll do it in the middle of the week, after work, not much of a, a cook, so uh, I'll make it a potluck dinner, yeah. and invited people around. And so... This was a you know a workaround to basically figuring out 
what you know the beginning steps towards something like what I'd seen in San Francisco and was missing back in Melbourne. And so people came this first time, and I think there were about 12 or 13 of us, and the theme that I sent out was far from home. So, but I didn't have time to curate people. So I just, I mean, curate who was going to tell stories. So I sort of winged it and just asked people to bring a story if they had one and crossed my fingers and hoped that, you know, they'd bring the dishes and <laughs> bring some stories. And so, well, we, we sat down and had, you know, people were having drinks and I went around and, and asked, so, you know, do you have a story? Do you have a story? And, and a couple of people said, yeah, I think, you know, I think I might have one. I said, would you mind going second? Would you mind going third? I told the first story. I thought, okay, it's on me to, to kick this thing off. Before long, we'd had a, a, a fantastic meal. Three stories had been told. We took a break, put the dishes in the dishwasher, brought out dessert. Some desserts had been brought. No planning on my part. That was just how the, <laughs> how the, uh, the potluck happened to shake out. And I said, well, does anybody else have a story? And by this time, people had had a glass of wine. They'd begun to get to know each other mm. and someone put their hand up and it continued. And I thought at the end of that, that was great. And I'll do it again next time at my place, and then I'll try, you know, to find a proper venue now that I've got legs under it. And th well, did it again the next month, and I realized, no, this is actually more interesting than what I was mm. trying to, to replicate initially. I mean, that was a fantastic event in San Francisco, but it had a different intention. It was, you know, there were 60 people sitting in rows, like a theater thing, and this was about people actually sharing stories from their lives meeting each other, getting to know each other. By the end of the night, you'd sort of know everybody's name. It was that kind of a group. And so what emerged from this was a, a kind of format for a storytelling potluck dinner called Stone Soup. And we did it, you know, every month for the next yeah, year and a half. Yeah. You came along, didn't you? I did come along. So that in itself is a story you know, about what it can look like to practice storytelling. And I think we need to wake up to the fact that that's what we're doing and asking others to do when we... Uh, I mean, it's not the only... I'm anticipating no. your objection, you know, about the, there's a lot of different kinds of futurists and, and, and uh, not everybody works in the same way, thankfully. But I do think that there's something central that we have... Uh, something central to the, to the calling, if you like, that has been weirdly in a blind spot on account of trying so very hard to be taken seriously as analysts uh, and as knowledge producers that we've forgotten to to tell stories and tell them compellingly. Mm. And I happen to have have a, a long-standing interest in film, and that's what I thought I was going to be doing. You know, making making films. I had a bit of background in theatre uh, from my first job was uh, singing in the chorus of a, uh, for a, a musical, you know, a professional musical in, in Brisbane and then did a couple of operas as a teenager. So I kind of had this theatrical background as well. And these things sort of just found their way into an intention, which was to make futures as compelling to everyone else as I thought it was. You know, what's happened over the last 10 years is that there has come to be a uh, I think, a groundswell of reflection in the future field about the need to incorporate these things. There have been several uh, programs, uh, academic programs and training programs and, you know, other sort of institutional or quasi-institutional efforts to develop things along these lines. And we're now in a position, collectively, as a community, that I think is much further along in this effort to bring futures to life. But it's an ongoing effort and we need to keep at it. Thanks, Stuart.
well, thanks, Stuart. It's I'm I'm glad we got a chance to do the, do this for the second time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, thanks for coming to Australia, and uh, thanks for the chance to do this. And it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Peter. It, it's the pleasure's been mine, and uh, I always enjoy our conversations. But this chance to sort of <laughs> revisit our failed recording from last year and and come out of face to face has been terrific. I I really. I really like what you're doing here. And if, if I'd been permitted, my question, if I would have liked to use the fifth question to ask you what you've been noticing from this effort to, um, to surface the, the stories and views of uh, dozens of futurists, the biggest such effort that I think has been done since uh, probably Sohail's What Futurists Think issue of Futures in 1996. Right. But there was the Toffler one in the 70s and the uh, Coates and Jarrett one a bit after that can I, can I may I well well maybe <laughs> and again I'm going to I'm going to close the interview but maybe um in another uh in a later time you interview the three of us that would be awesome yeah let's let's do that that would be yeah. great love to this has been another production from futurepod FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.